Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Wilkie. And I'm David Oro, and you're listening to The Embargo, the greatest PR podcast of all time. Yeah, it's great. There's always something to talk about and a point to make. And we're going to do it when we want, and which is usually every other week or so. Whether it's tech, business, sports, music, or your mama, we're going to cover it. And all of it comes from the point of public relations and corporate communications. Today's Thursday, March March 2, 2023. How you doing, Paul? I'm good. March. How'd that happen? In, in California, we finally got a sunny day. It's been a brutal winter for us. There was snow in Disneyland uh, and all kinds of stuff. It's been crazy. So, Paul, I'm excited about it to have our guest this week. And, and it's something that really hits to this decade, uh, the 2020s. It's been rough for all of us. We started out with a pandemic. There's a war going on, then it caused inflation, and there's business instability all around. And then all the kind of stuff that stupid things that companies do, whether it be Norfolk Southern's uh, reaction to their trail delayment, Southwest Airlines not investing in technology and having a full on Facebook's uh, ongoing struggles. Jeez, guys. Or even if it involves rap stars like Kanye West and Adidas, right? It's just a hot mess. Crisis communications is something that falls into that space. And today we're glad to have our good mutual friend, Brian Baker, on the show. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, Brian. Great to be here. Uh, thank you guys for having me on. Um, you know, it's, I've been following the embargo ever since its inception, over 50 episodes ago. I can't believe it's, uh, it's been 50 episodes. Uh, so congratulations on um, you know, continuing to put out uh, good content, and uh, I'm glad to, to be a part of it today. And Brian, I want to thank you for at least listening to one episode. <laughs> so I think I listened to the first one. I've seen every single one that's come across, but I have. To be fair, I have not listened to to to, to all of them. Brian, to your uh, to your credit or fault, you actually put us together many moons ago. Yeah, I'm kind of responsible for you know you guys. You know, I, I mean, you end up living in this you know same area of the Bay Area. Uh, but um, glad to like you know introduce two like very good PR people and like look where it's ended up. Yeah, it, it's good. And Brian is is the connector, if you will, between me and Paul. And Paul and I used to take a ferry from San Francisco to Vallejo. And Brian was kind enough to say, "Hey, there's this guy that I work with at Visa, and uh, he lived in Asia for a little bit. You lived in Asia. You both take the same boat." You should try to meet up one time, and um, we did. And I have to admit, I, I think Paul was in a different headspace. I was trying to be friendly with him, and Paul was not really talking to me. And uh, I was like, "Okay, Brian, that dude's a little weird." I try to be friends with him, but okay, he ended up being one of my best friends in around the region. It just took a little while to warm, <laughs> and I'm glad you connected us. I'm yeah, yeah, a little bit. Just making sure time. you were friend worthy. Like, you know, he's got a high bar. <laughs> or a low one down the wind, and I'm grateful for it, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. So, what do you guys want to talk about today? Well, first of all, tell us what you're doing today. I, I, you and I met years ago at Fleischman Hillard. Then you went off a few things. What do you uh, tell us about where you are and and uh, you know where you been? Yeah. Well, um, since you and I worked together many many decades ago back at Fleischman Hillard, um, I've you know, spent time on the agency side. After doing some work on the agency side, I went in-house. One of the in-house gigs that I had was at Visa. That's where I met Paul. 
And when Paul and I were at Visa, it was a fascinating time to be there. You know, they were going from five different independent operating organizations into a single public entity. And just the, the amount of work that was required in order to make that happen was pretty phenomenal. Paul was pretty, you know, very strategically involved in the IPO process. Um, and that was, that was really interesting. It was also when some of the first big data security issues started to happen and the team that was at Visa at the time really put together how best to effectively respond to some of those big data security uh, breaches that were happening, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and then there was class action litigation. There were you know, severe regulatory pressures that Visa was facing on, on a regular basis. So we really got to dive in deeply and deal with a lot of issues, deal with a lot of crisis situations. And I felt like the team at Visa did a really good job of, of handling a lot of those issues. Um, and that sort of spawned my, my interest in crisis communication. So after leaving Visa, I went back to the agency side. I mean, nobody, nobody does that, right? Like that's, that's idiotic. But I went back to the agency side because I wanted to focus on crisis communication. So I had a couple of different um, agency experiences, one at MSL, one at Brunswick Group, and it allowed me uh, the opportunity to work on a lot of really interesting crisis situations. Um, and after doing that for a number of years, um, I sort of ran into a situation where um, a lot of companies would come to Brunswick Group and say, hey, we need help. Uh, if they were big companies with big budgets, Brunswick was perfectly set up to help them. Um, but if they were smaller, you know, fast growing companies with limited budgets, maybe Series A, maybe Series B, uh, they typically just didn't have the budgets that are required when you want to bring on Brunswick or an Edelman or one of the other big agencies. And so I thought there was an opportunity there because these smaller agencies weren't really getting the support they needed, whether that was to be you know, more proactive with how they were responding to, to, to crisis situations or how they wanted to prepare for crisis situations. Um, or, you know, how they needed to respond once a crisis already occurred. There weren't a lot of consultants doing that. There weren't a lot of smaller agencies doing that. So I thought that was an opportunity. And so that's how I started Big Sky Crisis Communications um, and have been focused on that since uh, early 2019. And it's been a fun ride. You know, I get to be an entrepreneur. So I get to scratch that itch. Both of you guys know what that's like. Um, comes with all of its own you know, interesting challenges and opportunities. I like being my own boss. You know, um, sometimes you know I can be a real jerk and say like, no, no, you actually have to work today. Sometimes I can be a really cool boss and you know give myself the day off to go skiing or go bike riding. Um, but it's been um, a great opportunity to to to, to serve that small to mid sized um, fast growing technology market uh, and help them deal with crises more effectively. Uh, and so that's that's what I've been doing, and that's what Big Sky does. Yeah, clearly I'm a jerk because I've been chained to this desk for 15 years. <laughs> I don't know how you're getting that time off, dude. <laughs> it's all about balance, man. I mean, when yeah. you work in crisis, like one of the biggest things you'll learn is um, it's intense. Um, you know, as you guys know, our jobs can be very stressful. PR is always listed as one of the more stressful jobs that are um, that, that's out there. Um, crisis is particularly intense. And so if you don't find ways to balance um, that intensity with some time off, um, with the chance to recharge your batteries, then you're not going to be very good in what, at what you do. And so I, I just make sure that I build in some time to spend with my daughters, um, you know, spend skiing, spend with friends, spend with family, spend with my girlfriend. So it's all, you know, it's all part of just making sure that, you know, we're only here once, like, so let's have fun while we're doing it. And so work a little bit, play a little bit and try and, you know, try and make a little money along the way. 
I think one of the great things about crisis communications is it, for, for us, for PR professionals, it's the great equal, equalizer. It's one of those occasions where you can have clients or you can work at a company where the CMO or the CEO doesn't always value or appreciate or understand PR. But in times of crisis, you know, they're the first ones that knock on the door. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that's one of the things that pulled me toward crisis communications is you know, having a, a real seat at the table, you know, being in the boardroom, being you know, um, in the room with the, the leadership of a company uh, and having them really listen, not just listen to your advice, but take your advice. Um, and, you know, that's a challenging thing to do in, in, in PR. You know, we get paid to consult. Um, you know, our clients don't always take our advice, you know, but in a crisis situation, um, you know, they're really looking to the expert in the room to provide some context, to provide some counsel, um, to be a trusted advisor. Uh, and when they take your advice, uh, when they follow crisis communications best practices, it normally ends up making them look better. It makes their company look better. It makes the leadership look better. It makes the board look better. Uh, and so I just feel it's really consequential work. Um, and I think it, it makes the biggest difference in terms of protecting both corporate reputation and corporate valuation. Hey, Brian, I, I want to get back to uh, the intensity aspect of it. And you, you talked a little bit about that. And I, I would think obviously any crisis has a period of intensity because you have to, you have to deal with it, respond to it, et cetera. But for you, just what are the, what are the intensity channels? Is it the weight of, the client requesting something, the speed of which you need to get something out. What are those intense things that you feel on almost every sort of crisis? And how do you get through those? It, it, it's all of the above. And I think that's what makes it so challenging is that you need to get to decisions and you need to get to decisions quickly. And this is what Larry Kamer talked about when he was on your podcast a, a few months ago is those decisions are hard to reach because you're often factoring in multiple different constituencies, multiple different factors. There's always the unknown that happens in a crisis and reaching that decision is hard to do. And you see that when companies are delayed in making those decisions, whether that's when to communicate, who to communicate to, what they're going to say, um, who they're going to involve in the decision-making process, uh, it significantly slows down the response time. And the slower you are on your response time, uh, the less effective the communication is going to be. And so, you know, in terms of intensity, there's varying levels of intensity. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the, the crisis is not an existential crisis, a bet the company sort of thing where, you know, if you don't get it right, the company is going to go away. But you know, I worked on a project when I was at Brunswick Group where we were in a war room 18 hours a day for at least the first two weeks after the crisis happened, where every single day it felt like the company was going to fold if we didn't get the response right. Uh, fortunately, through a lot of hard work, um, both by the team that was responding to the crisis, the company, the board of directors, uh, the company got through it. Yeah, but it was an extraordinarily intense um, two weeks where you know, it was all on all of the time. And it started at six in the morning when you started getting calls from, from reporters. 
Um, you had to triage all of the different work that needed to get done during the day. You needed to find out when you're going to talk to the board. Um, and that would sort of take the, the, the team through the day. And then the very last thing that we would do at, you know, eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night is the interim CEO would come into the room and say, okay, what do I need to say to employees? You know, they need some guidance so they know that they can show up at work in the morning and have a pretty clear set of actions to know, that, you know what they need to do in order to get through the next day. And so we'd sit down there and we'd write a fairly long, you know, two, three page employee note at the end of the day that encapsulated everything that happened and everything we needed to do the next day. Um, so it's, you know, in that situation, we were the consultants, but it also felt intensely personal. You know, it, everybody who was at the company was in the, you know, um, uh, was in the crisis with us. They wanted the company to, to succeed. They knew that if the company didn't succeed, they're all going to be looking for jobs. Uh, and so not only was it, you know, a big reputational issue, but you, you know, their, their, their livelihoods um, were at stake. Uh, and it just felt, you know, kind of back to Paul's point that the work was really consequential um, and ultimately really rewarding. Yeah. You know, I try to explain that to people when you're in a room like that, what it feels like and you feel the weight, right? Mm -hmm. And particularly if you're in a room and a crisis is happening and there's a lot on the table, whether it be money, whether it be reputation, whether it be um, a lawsuit or something. And you do, when you say personal, it's true because you're looking at a CEO, you're looking at the vice president, you're looking at the legal team, you're looking, you're getting on the phone with a, bit, with a reporter who's going to write a story. And the weight of that can be heavy, <laughs> really, yeah. really heavy. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the reason why people pay good bucks for crisis communications. They do. And I, I think it takes a certain kind of person to be successful at crisis communications. If you're the kind of person who, you know, gets frazzled and go, you know, starts going in a hundred different directions when um, the intensity ramps up, you're not going to be successful at crisis communications. If you're the kind of person who can bring the pressure level down and remain calm, cool, and collected in a crisis, um, you're going to be more effective in terms of communication, more effective in terms of decision-making, more effective in terms of consensus um, and, and you know, just gathering information and, and providing good advice. Um, nobody wants to make the intensity any higher. And so I've always looked at it as my job is to try and bring down that level of intensity um, just by, you know, you know, simple, you know, simple things like, you know, um, uh, having an agenda for a meeting, you'd be surprised at how often you walk into some of these crisis situations and there's not an agenda for like how we're going to get through the meeting. Well, if you follow the agenda and say, all right, here's what we need to get through and deal with it in a really effective way, then, you know, decisions get made in a timely manner and you're out of there and you, you go on to actually do the work. If you just spend all day around, the, you know, around the table making, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, nothing gets done. Um, and one of the most important things you can do in a crisis is actually to get stuff done. Um, you know, and, um, I think that's part of what happened in the Norfolk Southern disaster is that, um, uh, you had, you know, an organization, Norfolk Southern, that was relying on local law enforcement, local first responders to try and respond to it as they should, but first responders weren't really equipped, uh, to respond to it. They thought the Norfolk Southern should be doing something. And so, you know, you had this 
this situation that, that does impact the health of the individuals in East Palestine. You, know, you have a situation that you know, needed some immediate communication. It needed some immediate action, and it just wasn't happening. And um, as a result, you know, the company has been on the back foot since the derailment happened. Um, it's cost the company more than $5 billion in market cap. Um, you know, the price that the stock of the price is down significantly. Um, you know, that doesn't even factor in the reputational cost of this disaster. You know, Norfolk Southern is going to be known as the company, you know, that had this toxic spill and this toxic cloud that was detonated above this town that's already disadvantaged. East Palestine, you know, um, it's overlooked. It's been overlooked for many, many years. Exactly the kind of town and community that J.D. Vance talked about in Hillbilly Elegy, which yeah. is, you know, they lost a lot of the manufacturing jobs back in the 70s and 80s. Um, then they had to deal with the opioid epidemic. Uh, they've been overlooked in terms of all sorts of economic development opportunities. Um, and listen, like this is not the first derailment in East Palestine. This community has dealt with it in 2011. It dealt with it in 2012. If you go back, you know, even farther than that, there've been multiple derailments um, in East Palestine and in this kind of general community area. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is dangerous chemicals pass through these small communities all the time. Most communities are not even aware of it. There's over a thousand derailments every single year in the United States. Big, um, big and small railroads know how to deal with these things. They, they, they have detailed plans. They have, you know, um, intricate um, crisis communications plans. They have intricate crisis response plans. They drill these things with local um, first responders. Um, so the fact that Norfolk Southern didn't get this right, I think is just completely unexcusable because it's, um, you know, this is something that they, you know, that they need to know how to do and they just didn't do it well. And they're going to be paying the price for a long time. I'd have to double check, but I know, you know, you know, from my experience with container shipping, you know, the government actually mandates, you know, not crisis communications, but disaster drills. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Norfolk Southern had to go through crisis drills and whether they involve, you know, crisis communications team or not. I mean, that's a big deal. And, you know, Norfolk Southern is, you know, for those of us old enough to remember, you know, their name is almost synonymous with disaster. You've been car Union Carbide was. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 I think, is the unfortunate um, reality um, for, you know, the, the, the community of, of East Palestine is, um, you know, this didn't have to, you know, maybe the derailment couldn't have been prevented. I, you know, I, I, you know, that's a whole different discussion on regulatory issues and whether they maintain their tracks and whether they, you know, were investing in all of the different sort of safety protocols uh, in order to prevent the derailments. You know, similar situation happened maybe 10 years ago when the, a lot of the railroads in the Western United States were transporting crude oil um, from North Dakota to, you know, up, up to Canada or there, you know, um, and there were a, at least two or three derailments. One resulted in a massive explosion up in Canada and ended up um, killing, um, I think, a dozen people in a, a community up there. Uh, and that sparked a full round of investments in, you know, bolstering the infrastructure and making sure that these companies that were transporting crude oil were doing everything they could to try and 
protect the communities um, that were impacted by these, these, these shipments. The other interesting aspect of the Norfolk Southern disaster, there's, there's a lot of different aspects and, and we could probably talk about this for way longer than, this, than we have on this podcast. But, um, you know, so in, in any kind of a crisis situation, you want to respond as quickly as possible. They didn't do that. It took them several days to actually figure out how to do the, all the communications, figure out the response protocol, get the EPA involved, get FEMA involved, get um, local first responders involved. The news, however, the way and the way news works today is the news had pretty much died down around February 12th. The incident happened on February 2nd or 3rd, I believe. The news had pretty much gone down. And then all of a sudden, there was this massive uptick in social media activity. And Norfolk Southern said, you know, this is this is bots. These are a few activists who are sending out pictures of this, you know, this cloud, this toxic cloud um, that's burning off this nasty, you know, vinyl chloride stuff. Um, which, by the way, like once it like once that degrades into something called um, uh, biosphene, it is the same agent that was used in World War I as a choking agent on the battlefields in Europe. I mean, it's nasty, nasty stuff. Um, and so, you know, obviously the railroad knew about this um, and people started to find out about it. And once, you know, a few social media uh, personalities started, you know, um, raising the visibility of this, then Norfolk Southern said, it's the bots. There's a whole bunch of bots from foreign controlled entities that are amplifying this story. And so rather than just taking accountability and saying, hey, listen, you know, we're trying to solve a problem here, they blamed it on the bots. Um, and while there may be some element of truth to that, I mean, you can certainly see a significant increase in social media activity after the 12th. Um, blaming it on the bots is not ever going to get you anywhere in terms of a crisis response. No, not at all. So Brian, how do you, and then Northwest Southern thing is, uh, that's going to be a case study on how not to do communications. And it's, it was pretty bad. And even then, it's like, if you're going to be applying crisis communications and you've got to settle down, you're still monitoring. You need to be ready to continue that, you know, at least several weeks down the road because something's going to come up. And they got taken. What, how do you, what are, are there things that you do to get ready for a crisis that you advise? clients to do on a regular, you know, like sort of a template, if you will, I mean, each situation is unique. But, you know, when you talk to clients, sometimes it's not something that they want to do until there's a crisis, which is yeah. often too late. Um, how do you work with clients? Well, getting organizations to do a crisis plan, whether you call that a playbook, a plan, um, or, you know, a response protocol, Getting them to do that ahead of time is tricky. What normally happens is there's a small crisis, a small issue. It feels like it could be a big one. Uh, and it's enough to scare the CEO, the um, you know, uh, general counsel, um, or a board member into saying, you know what, that was a close call. We should get more prepared to deal with a, a real crisis if one were to occur. Um, so that's often an important inflection point. The other inflection point is if they are 
getting ready to become a public company or if they're getting ready for a next big round of funding and they're expecting that additional scrutiny that could come with sort of with a, a crisis event, that's often another inflection point for them. What I often advise as the first thing to do before you even develop a crisis plan is just sit down and do a vulnerabilities analysis. Look at all of the potentially terrible things that could happen to your company, whether they are self-inflicted or externally caused, and then map those out and figure out which of those events are most likely to cause the biggest reputational damage and the biggest operational damage. And if you find three or four of those that are most likely to cause the most damage, get ready for those. And the best way to get ready for those is to have a full-blown crisis communications plan. But if you don't have a full-blown crisis communications plan, at least have a one or two page protocol of how you're going to respond in a crisis and have some of the basic elements in place. You know, have, have media statements ready to go, you know, have a crisis team, you know, who's going to be the decision maker in that crisis team, who's going to be involved in advising the decision maker on those specific issues. Um, who are the different audiences that you need to connect with um, and need to be advised of what's happening in that situation? And then how do you get to them? I can't tell you the number of times like that we've wanted to get to customers and nobody knows how to effectively email all of the different customers that are um, customers or clients um, of, of a given company. Who owns those relationships? Is it the salesperson? Is it the CRM system? Is it you know this you know kind of back end weird email management system? Is it you know a, a file that sits on the CEO's desk? You know it's simple things like that get really complicated in a crisis situation and you don't want to be figuring that out in the heat of the moment. So that would be my initial advice is look at the things that could potentially happen, figure out how big of a risk those actually are, and then do a little bit of planning to make sure that you're ready to deal with those. And then, you know, if you, um, you know, if you really want to you know, move down the crisis spectrum towards full preparedness, do a simulation. Sit around the table and test yourself. See what would happen if there's a cybersecurity incident. How would you respond to that? Who would you involve? Who are you going to call in? Um, if there's um, a workplace violence incident, I mean that's less of an issue today than it was you know, before the pandemic. Um, but there, you know, that used to be a real concern for you know a certain number of companies. Uh, is how would you deal with either a disgruntled employee or the um, you know a, a you know, significant others, X who comes in and you know wants to cause problems. Um, how you know how do you deal with those? Um, so my advice is always you know it's better to be prepared. Um, most companies wait until a crisis actually happens, uh, and then they pick up the phone and they call an agency, they call a consultant, and say help. You know, can you help? And then you just scramble. You know, like you work really fast, you work really hard, you try and follow crisis communications best practices and you get the response done you know as quickly and as effectively as you can but it makes it so much easier if you've done a little bit of planning ahead of time yeah and i think that planning is crucial and, and one of the things you, you make a really good point that i think there's there's sort of a an assumption that when you do crisis scenario planning you have to come up with everything you don't because murphy's law will suggest that whatever you don't plan for is what you're going to end up with but by practicing and putting best practices in on how to deal with a crisis, maybe not a specific crisis or not the crisis you're anticipating, you can always sort of take from the playbook and alter it. And yeah, I think yeah. a great example 
is, you know, look at East Palestine. They weren't prepared for this, but their crisis communications, uh, the, the town itself actually did a pretty good job of communicating effectively. Um, and I think on the other end of the spectrum, I think all three of us remember Y2K. We planned to the nth fucking degree what we needed to do and nothing happened. We literally had an intern run out to the ATM at midnight to check to see if they were working. So we had we had all these scenarios in place and we didn't use them for that, but we used what we learned and what we applied elsewhere down the road. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. The people who do crisis communications and prepare for it, they just keep adding for whatever they think is coming. So if it happened, it's definitely in their crisis communications playbook. Um, a while back, I was handed the United Airlines crisis communications playbook. It was this thick. It was huge. And that's everything from a hostage situation to a medical emergency on the plane, somebody dying, poisons, bombs, <laughs> stabbings, uh, strikes, <laughs> labor disputes, uh, plane malfunction. It's amazing how that is. And uh, my good friend, Nigel Glennie, he's out there. He used to do, I think it was Hilton. I want to say Hilton. Um, and uh, he uh, did crisis comms there. And he said something uh, that was insightful and obvious, but I had never recognized it. He's all, anything that happens at a hotel happens anyplace else in the world, right? People sleep, they shower, they eat, <laughs> they visit, <laughs> they get robbed, <laughs> right? There's a fire, there's gunshots, there's all, anything can happen in one of these places. And if you look at it across the board, you know, a lot of companies don't prepare for anything can happen in their place. And like you said, Brian and Paul, you don't have to do everything, but you ought to be prepared for something. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, Southwest Airlines is another good example. You mentioned it at the top of the podcast. They have one of those great big books. And you know what? Southwest Airlines is one of the best organizations in terms of communicating with its customers. But they could not have possibly foreseen a complete meltdown of their system and stranding tens of thousands of passengers across the United States and then having everything disrupted for you know, multiple weeks that's just not something that they could possibly imagine in all of their planning. And when the full system melts down like that, you see how difficult it is to try and stay on top of the messaging, on top of the narrative, and maintain that trust in um, among your constituents, among your customers, or among yeah. all the different players that are involved out there. And I think that's also where Norfolk Southern has missed the opportunity is because they weren't out there actively communicating they they lost the trust of everybody um that you know had any interest in the situation whatsoever whether that's you know regulators lawmakers um first responders community members the general public um and they're going to be fighting for a long time to try and rebuild that reputation rebuild that trust and you know, it remains to be seen whether or not they're even going to be able to do that, right? Regardless of the millions of dollars that they're going to have to put into that reputation rebuild program. And I think that's one of the biggest important, you know, one of the big takeaways for crisis communications is if you don't get it right, it's going to cost so much more in the long run to try and make up for the mistakes of not doing a little bit of planning ahead of time, and not taking the right actions in the in in the heat of the crisis. Well, I can guarantee you right now that every technology vendor is knocking on their door, saying you gotta invest in some technology to get your systems right. 
Hey, Brian, we're, we're coming up near the end of our thing here, but I don't want to get two more spots here. Uh, first of all, Larry, our good friend Larry Kamer was on the show before you. He does Crisis Comms. And you mentioned before we were recording that uh, you took away a note that said, PR is not ER. And Larry was like, can you talk to us about that and why you think differently from him? Because I think Larry was saying, listen, PR is very important, but it's you're not an emergency medical doctor, you know, doing EKG on the heart and trying to save a life. Crisis communications and PR is not brain surgery. It's not extraordinarily technical in terms of what you need to do. There is a set of best practices. Act fast, act responsibly, do the right thing, be empathetic, um, be transparent. If you do those things, if that's the mental model that you have, you're generally gonna be okay. Where I differ with Larry a little bit is that, you know, um, he said PR is not ER. I think in some situations, PR absolutely needs to operate like an emergency room where, you know, you are responsible for providing essential life-saving or, um, you know, uh, if not life-saving, then, you know, critically, critical safety information uh, to protect your health. Um, and who else is going to do that? You know, you know, in this situation, it was supposed to fall to first responders. First responders didn't do it. Norfolk Southern did, different, didn't do it. And as a result, you've got a whole community um, that is toxically polluted for a long period of time. And so I would maintain that there are situations in, in terms of life, death, and safety um, where uh, communications is one of the most important things to get right and needs to act as uh, a critical emergency function. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Let's have a little bit of fun here. We, yes, let's. And I'm, I'm going to – actually, it's been pretty fun to talk about this whole – everything that we've been talking about. but. Uh, when we started the embargo, we used to do a lot of games. And then it got really hard because we couldn't think of any more games. But one game came through all the time. It's a segment we call Rep, Fire, and Refer. And for you, Brian, I wanted to play this little game. So the whole thing is you have to – I'm going to give you three names. And you have to make a decision on all of them. You're either going to represent them as an agency or a consultant. You're going to fire their asses and get rid of them. Or you're going to refer them to a friend like me and Paul who may or uh, not take them. So I'm going to give you three. You ready to go? Yep. Your choices are Fox News, who has been lying through their teeth about the 2020 election, um, and they've gotten caught with uh, their executives saying that, you know what, um, this Dominion thing and all these claims about election fraud <laughs> are, are not true, but let's broadcast that they are true anyway. The second one is inflation. Inflation, inflation, inflation. This how you know everybody knows what's going on. Everything's expensive. And the last one has been in the news and a lot of headlines in the last two weeks. Chat GPT, right? Or any AI technology that is trying to take over our whole system of living and work. So Fox News, inflation, chat GPT. Rep fire refer. Uh Fox, I would fire. Fire. <laughs> All right. You know, just <laughs> They have been more divisive for more reasons than I would care to, you know, elaborate on here. But yeah, fire those fuckers. <laughs> um, inflation, that's a tricky one. So, uh, very, very interesting topic. I'm going to refer that one over to you guys. You know, you're smart. Um, I would love to see how you guys would handle inflation. 
Um, chat GPT, that's fascinating. That is a game-changing technology. It's going to have a significant impact on business and our lives moving forward. I'm representing that one. There you go. All right, Brian. Well, thank you for having us on the show. It's dude, your insights are great. Like, you know, funny. Brian and I are pretty good friends. I don't think we ever talk about this kind of stuff. No, we talk about fishing. We talk about backpacking. Like, yeah, you know. backpacking and fishing. So yeah. good to hear you in your professional world. Right. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I was a little nervous coming on here. You know, you guys have been doing this for a long time. I, I'm I'm a relative rookie when it comes to podcasting. So uh, Brian, you're welcome anytime. And I think one of the one of the key takeaways from the conversation today is. You know, I think all of us in PR are adrenaline junkies at heart, uh, but no one ever wants to have to do crisis communications at the drop of a hat. That's where preparation, messaging, scenarios, a plan really comes into place. And and the work you're doing and the work you've done over the years is, is, a, is a testament to that. Thanks, Paul. Um, you know, if there's ever a chance for us all to work together, I think we could have a lot of fun regardless. God of help what, what company that would be. Yeah. <laughs> be at fox news all right all right guys thank you great show and uh we'll see everyone else when we're when we decide to do another one take, take care, care everybody thank you. take care guys you're looking for trouble came to the right place you're looking for trouble just look right at my face i was bone standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green eye man.